it's an aversion of perspective, right? One of the things we touched on last week was how ultimately at its core, the original Candyman is still a movie that is told through the lens of whiteness. It centers Helen, you know, she is told from her perspective ultimately, and it feels like the filmmaker is bringing in the white perspective, right? Uh, this movie is not that. And I don't know if the mirror and sort of inversion motif, if that's what she was going for, but I took it that way too. I, I, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways you can take it, but one of the ways I took it was we're at the ground floor now looking up. We're, we're, we're on the street, right? We're not looking down at it from above. We are through the mirror. We're through the looking glass. We're seeing the other side. And yeah, I, uh, I love all of that. And, and that's just the kind of care that goes into this movie. Welcome, friends, to episode 196 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Nia DaCosta's 2021 film, Candyman. So this isn't my first time going back to the theater, but it's one of few times. But I know this is your first time going back to the theater. And was it a religious experience for you? What was it like? (laughs) It was kind of a weird experience. Um... But it was also an awesome experience. So my theater that I like to go to is, it's always been in this weird spot of, of downtown. And um, I parked across the street and had to walk over to it. And you get up to the theater and it seems like almost no one's there. There's like a couple of employees present and that's about it. Um, so I check in and I go to the theater and then I walk in and I'm alone in the theater. Like completely no one in there. This was, I think, 10 minutes, five or 10 minutes prior to it, you know, officially starting. Sit down, you know, I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Maybe I'll be alone in this. But uh, right after I thought that, uh, it, it, people started filing in. It ended up being about, I don't know, less than a dozen people. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, a few of them were kind of near me. So gotcha. I couldn't really, like, take notes comfortably without feeling like I was, you know, being that person. So I was like, all right, I'm just not going to take notes. I'm just going to try and remember everything. But yeah, I mean, all of that contributed to this interesting feeling seeing Candyman. You know what I mean? Like I was alone, first off, went and saw this movie by myself because my wife is is not into uh, not into horror movies. And it's I went and saw it on a Sunday night, so it was kind of an odd time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, what a movie to see by yourself in this kind of odd setting. And then I'm wearing a, a you know a mask the whole the whole movie, right? Um, and, and there's like this kind of lingering threat in the air, you know. It's just this sense yeah. of that. It's it's a very odd experience. Um, but the lights go down, the sound comes on, and um, it does. It just reminded me of what I love about being in a theater, and um, it really helps you devote the time you're there to experiencing the film. You know what I mean? Like it is 
that's yeah. what you're there doing. There's you're not on your phone. You're not distracted. There's not other stuff going on. Now maybe there can be an annoyance in the theater, sure, but for the most part, it's like you're just engaging with the work in the way that it was intended to be engaged with. And um, I missed that, and I, I had a good time watching this movie. Uh, and yeah, being back in the theater was great. I hope that this is something I can continue to do. Um, you know, fingers crossed everybody get vaccinated if you haven't, because we would all like to return to the theaters. <laughs> yeah. So um, similar experience. I went a weird, really weird time, and there was like, I think a total of like six people in my theater. And uh, this is my third time going back to the theaters. And it's it's so weird to me how it's affected me more than I ever anticipated. I was like, yeah, I love movies. It's like my life. I, you know, I want to work in this. I want to create this. Um, and then something about going to the movies literally has been like, for me, a religious experience where like, okay. I had like, I felt like my chest was getting tight and stuff like I had like legitimate like heartache almost or something like that that was like it, it was just it was such a weird wave of emotion just the, the feeling of being in the, yeah. in the theater or okay yeah when I was sitting in the theater I got there pretty early I was sitting there mm -hmm. well before the the trailer started and it was just like so overwhelming I felt really emotional in a mm -hmm. in a way that I never anticipated uh all this That's time awesome. and it, and that. it keeps being the case that's the third time that it's happened and, yeah. and uh, I think it's also giving me these moments where I get to really put these movies that I see in theaters up on a pedestal in my in my experience. And like this movie was so it, it was so interesting, too, because we d I saw it alone. And there's so much of that I immediately wanted to talk about because there's so much social being said in like the social stratosphere of what's going on in the country and what life is like and what it's been like and like the commentary that's being made with horror movies and the commentary that's being made with Candyman, which was a horror movie that was created by a white person and then now it's it's been uh directed by anita costa and just like what she was able to do with it and and then of course the reports all coming out that uh she's now the number one black female director to debut ever at the box office that's and like, awesome so how, well deserved yeah it's amazing and like uh, then going to learn more about her. Like I, I knew some about her because she's going to be, um, she's currently, I think filming the Marvels, which is the Captain oh, Marvel really? sequel. Yeah. And, uh, wow. And I don't know if you noticed, I think you saw WandaVision, but like our, um, mm -hmm. Tiona Paris is, yeah, uh, I, I recognize was her from, from that. WandaVision and she's yeah. going to be in the Marvels and Nia DaCosta is directing the Marvels. And like, that's just like that, that part of me, the superhero lover part of me, is excited about that and I love seeing these like amazing directors continue to get work like that um, to make these like massive s studio films as well. Uh, this movie from the yeah. get go though, I'd love to hear like what you thought about it. Uh, so we're going to keep things spoiler free here. We're going to be careful about it because this is a movie that I know a lot of people might be waiting on, right? If you're not comfortable doing what we did, going to a theater, if you're not able to do that, um, I totally get it. And this is not really available for streaming, at least that I could find. I don't know at what point it will be. So I'm hoping that people will check this out down the road. Um, but just in case you're checking it out now, um, we are going to do a very spoiler-free breakdown of our thoughts before we get into that. So you can, you're can you safe and we'll let you know when when, when you're not. <laughs> this movie, yeah. So uh, first off, Yaya Bulmatin II is fantastic in this film and another familiar face. We covered him on The Watchmen uh, HBO adaptation that uh, we did as a bonus episode, which I think we released in the main feed. Um, and he was incredible in that. 
and uh, again is incredible like uh, an amazing actor big fan I just had to touch on him because you, you mentioned some other the stars. But uh, yeah, let's zoom out a little bit. This movie is really an amazing piece of work. I, I think it is a fantastic, smart, beautiful, artful, subtle, yet bold, scary, mm-hmm. uh, affecting uh, creation. And it takes the Candyman mythos as established by Barker and um in the original film and it and it takes that and it combines it with the last 30 years of candyman in its its effect on our culture and our society and it, and mm-hmm. it synthesizes all of that to create this film so it's more than just a sequel it's not only a sequel or or a fall a spiritual successor to that film it is also a synthesis of everything that that film has come to stand for combined with like you were saying before like very topical um current event type yeah. things we talked about with the first movie how it almost seemed like the director was sort of backing into and like stumbling into some of these social uh commentaries that are being made and i think they were affecting and we've talked about how they're influential for the time especially and just to see like how that's then extrapolated on like you're you're saying yeah i mean it's so good and 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 it feels like it's in the right hands now someone who really gets it um i think nia da costa really handled this material well she was respectful of it yet unapologetic yeah um something i kept having in my notes was just so unflinching too like yeah like if this is like if this first of all if it offends you fuck you kind of situation in terms of if you see these things that are going on in our daily lives and because you're not confronted with them because you might be privileged or sheltered from that kind of stuff and then you see it on the screen and it's and it's bothering you it's supposed to bother you in the way that you know how the brutality that's that's specifically I'm, I'm i'm immediately thinking of like police and 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 how brutal it's been and how like it's just been it was normalized for such a long time and how this takes this moment to like spin that and 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 use that because it's so heavy because it's mm-hmm. so important to talk about it. and obviously with everything that's gone on over the past you know 30 years or whatever we said uh there's yeah. so much to be said there so I agree with you somewhat, right? Like that, uh, fuck you to people who are bristling for those reasons like you outlined. Um, There is an interesting discussion to be had, and I don't think I'm the person to have it, and I don't think you're the person to have it either, but um, there is a big discussion right now in the black community about black horror in particular, which is sort of a ascendant genre, Mm -hmm. and the way that it is using depictions of black trauma to create horror um, and how that can be re-traumatizing people in the audience. Um, And then also, you know, even, even within the film, I think it's commented on a little bit of like an artist who's, who's representing something and benefiting from it and making money yeah. off of it. There, there's a little bit of, some, I mean, it's kind of lampshaded. Yeah. There's kind of a ethical quandary that I think is still being discussed. Um, I just want to point people to a article I read that I really, really liked. I'll, I'll be referencing it some in here, but I think go read the article itself. Um, and it's not very long. 
Um, it'll be in the show notes. So if you click on your app and go and down to the show notes, I'll have it linked there. It's called Reflecting on the Man in the Mirror. What lens should we use to critique Candyman? Um, and that's by Kenitra D. Brooks. Um, the piece is really, really good. It talks about the kind of things I was just men- mentioning and the way in which all of these subjects are dealt with in Candyman in particular. Um, again, it's not really something for me to speak on other than to say I, I found it really enlightening um, and I recommend people check it out. Yeah, I'd like to read that, and I'm sure it would help me understand some of the things, maybe even more, that that go on in this story. But I did find it personally interesting to see the way that Nia DaCosta was able to, like, make these social commentaries and build on the mythos and sort of have uh, motivations more clear and sort of what, what Candyman is and what the community as a whole sees Candyman as. And again... That's just my perspective on it. Yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of other great ones. Yeah, it's, you know, I think you're touching on the right things because, so I, I did watch a little bit of, of stuff. Um, I normally don't, but for this one, I wanted to to do a little bit of research. And one of the things that uh, Nia DaCosta said in an interview that I really liked was she told this story about how Candyman for her was very real urban legend. Um, she grew up near the projects and it was like this demon that haunted the projects and was known like amongst the the kids. And so for her, she, she didn't even, she hadn't even seen the movie. By the time she saw the movie, it was terrifying because it was a representation of this very real urban legend she'd heard growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's really neat, right? Like it talks about what we, we, we mentioned last week about how this thing was created in the way that we've talked about, yet it has become itself this cultural phenomenon and has taken on a life of its own and it feels to me like that is that's what she's making a movie about she's making a movie about the cultural phenomenon that is Candyman in the way that it has uh interacted with the black community and that is just brilliant to do it that way I love it yeah because the director of the first film we talked about last last week was kind of just saying like doesn't this create like great drama having it in this like very potentially violent setting and this and that and it's all very like what like you're you're yeah like, he's like everybody's afraid of this place and it's like who's everybody yeah it doesn't feel like he was viewing them as people necessarily as like and you know we're we're kind of I don't know if it's fair to to say that about yeah. his, his viewpoint on that stuff but at the same time that was kind of what I was getting from the words he was saying around the time that the movie was coming out so yeah it's it's, it's tough it's tough because we're looking at it thirty years later and I think yeah. there's been a lot of like good work in educating people on how to talk about things in a way that isn't offensive and isn't, you know, that, that, that is, that is, I don't know, inclusive and proper. And, you know, it's hard for me to judge somebody 30 years ago for maybe saying some stuff that isn't quite, quite right. (laughs) I want to give them credit. Yeah. I, I felt like last week, maybe I didn't give them enough credit for making this film that has gone on to be such an iconic piece of work. Like, yeah, he's a white guy. He did make a good movie that that has been important, and I think a lot of it was intentional. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't right. purely an accident. Like yeah. some of this had to be on purpose. So well, anyway. and the changes that were made from Clive Barker's original story clearly show that. Like the set, yeah. the, the 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 social commentary was there. It was just was it done perfectly? Definitely not. There's plenty of stuff to point to that that doesn't really hold up. But uh, at the same time, the influence is there, and like you said, like planting this in Nia, young Nia DaCosta's mind and and how that affected her and what it meant to her. That I just think this creates like such a more complex and like deep version of the story at this point. 
where we're still here in spoiler-free territory, I want to say this movie is expertly crafted. It is thematically consistent. It is. It has a message that everything about the movie plays into. Um, I felt like it was tight. I felt like it had everything I want from a horror film. It just, I don't know, like, it, 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 I think it's very, very good. I think people should see it, especially if you're a fan of the first one. Um, I, I, I assume that there will be some people who don't like it, but I, I think I, I feel very comfortable in recommending this to people. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, between the performances, um, some of the things that I, that I had issue with in the, in the original Candyman, and this partially due to age and just the time period that the film came out, uh, some of those things were, were non-existent in this like this is like it's it's well shot it's extremely creative like you said the like every shot is meticulously set up to tell the story of what the vision is here and it's that Mm -hmm. you know this community candy man what he's always represented in like the blocking the the shots that are there even the start of the movie it's not a spoiler to talk about the start of the movie but in the start of the original candy man we had the bird's eye view coming into chicago with the streets and the buildings and everything and this one and again we got to talk about the beginning of it being mirrored the all of yeah. the all of the production companies and the logos were all mirrored everything was mirrored there was a guy in front of me who was like losing it when this he was, was happening like, oh the projection they've yeah they he's like the yeah yeah he's like we didn't yeah. go tell somebody <laughs> he was losing it that's good that's great that's an awesome story uh so <laughs> the in the first few shots of chicago also that guy got up and left one third of the way through the movie don't know why Maybe he got a phone call or something. I don't know, but it was very odd. It wasn't for him. We'll just say it wasn't for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so some of the first shots we see in the movie are like these inverted shots where we're, we're upside down, looking yeah. up into the sky at buildings. And like, yeah. just that's, it was so visually awesome. And then the, like the same kind of callback to like an aerial shot of Chicago and seeing it in different ways. And then the mirror, the mirror uh, motif throughout was just so strong. And uh, I thought it worked really well. It's an inversion of perspective, right? One of the things we touched on last week was how ultimately at its core, the original Candyman is still a movie that is told through the lens of whiteness. It centers Helen, you know, she is told from her perspective ultimately. And it feels like the filmmaker is bringing in the white perspective, right? Uh, this movie is not that. And I don't know if the mirror and sort of inversion motif, if that's what she was going for, but I took it that way too. I, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways you can take it, but one of the ways I took it was we're at the ground floor now looking up. We're, we're, we're on the street, right? We're not looking down at it from above. We are through the mirror. We're through the looking glass. We're seeing the other side and, yeah, I uh, I love all of that, and and that's just the kind of care that goes into this movie. Um, it also gets kind of meta. Um, it it is kind of a movie about making a movie about Candyman, which is which is really interesting. It's about art, yeah. It's about it's a movie about making art at times yeah, as well. Which, which like can... I know that can seem a little like self indulgent to people, but when done here, it's done in a fresh way because it's about specifically the things we were talking about earlier, like dealing with black trauma in art for black artists. And that's not something that I see dealt with like a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I felt like it was fresh um, even though that might sound somewhat familiar to people. Um, and it's the kind of thing that appeals to artists more than maybe your average audience goer, but I, yeah. I loved it. Um, so artists love art, you know, artists love it. Yeah. Can you believe it? Uh, so there's a lot of um, 
cliches i would say that that do appear in the movie but don't feel like cliches so like having having an art exhibit like in in this setting with like snobby artists talking back and forth to each other and some of that stuff and then but um again like i've said some of the slasher scenes tended to be like very they almost feel like disconnected from the story at certain points for the sake of being a slasher scene i'm thinking specifically of the one in the school uh yep we can talk Which about that one, yeah. A slight spoiler, I guess, but that that one felt like it was something where it was like excellent scene that needed to be executed in this film. Um, and then it feels like it's a, you know, it, you don't have to call it cliche. You can call it like an homage to slasher films. You can call right. it something like that. And uh, and I love that it's in conversation with that kind of stuff. Right. And oh, if you're a Clive Barker fan, um, there is some interesting nods. Uh, I won't spoil what they are, but keep your eye out. There's a few little Easter eggs. So yeah. look look for that. I do think we should talk about the fact that Jordan Peele was involved and the films that he's created so far that he's directed specifically and some of the ones that he's produced as well. But like the, the commentary that's being made and the way that and I don't know how this will come off, but I'm just going to say it like as a white audience member, like I'm getting I'm getting a perspective that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten. And this this movie did end up being, uh, you know, still per- perspective sh- changing of course like i've had these sort of thoughts and conversations before with people but this felt like another moment where as w- as i was walking out of the theater i was like this is a this is a like perspective shift for me like, mm. however however little it was it it still felt like it was something like a good um like touchstone that i can look at and say like this is like this is something that i haven't experienced but i love that like i've now experienced it through the through the lens of the film um and i think that's ultimately what the goal is here I agree. You know, I I think these days there's a lot of cynical people, especially you'll get this on Twitter. Um, And I'm not even saying I disagree with this, but like there's a lot of people talking about how like or or will make fun of people for admitting that they didn't understand something. Right. Um, It's like, oh, it's obvious you should get that. You know, so obvious everybody else. And like we all have things that we need to learn about and I don't, I agree. Like, I think that's the reason you make a movie like this. So I think it's okay to say, yeah, I went in and I feel like it shifted my perspective and it, and it showed me something I wasn't necessarily like ready for yet. I walked away understanding. Um, I think that's great. You know, like, is, is it designed for to educate white audiences? No, I don't think so. But is it designed to interact with all audiences regardless and show a piece of black trauma and their experience. Um, yes, I think so. And in that sense, I think it's incredibly effective. One more thing. Uh, if you are curious about like how gory, how um, scary, like those kind of questions, which I know a lot of people do consider when it comes to horror movies, and I'm maybe not the best judge of this, but um, I think this movie is quite scary it has some pretty horrific body horror um, that depending on what it is, you know, like certain things bother you could be very, very visceral. Um, So I guess if you go into it, be ready for that. Or if that sounds like something you just can't get behind, be aware. I think if you've seen the original Candyman, this one, this one will probably because of the, the update and just the art of making horror films, uh, it's probably a little bit scarier than the original Candyman, but in terms of like gore and things that you'll see, I think it's 
pretty comparable. There might be a little bit more. I in think this. The, the body horror, the body horror is a lot worse in this one, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. We see some stuff in the original, but yeah, I guess I could see what you mean. On that note, I think we should move into the filmmaker. Yeah. I, now, I don't know anything about her, so I'm really curious, like, how many movies has she made before this? Like, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, she's she's young. She was born in 1989. Yeah. Nia DaCosta is an American director and screenwriter. She wrote and directed the crime thriller film Little Woods in 2019, winning the Nora Ephron Prize at the Tribeca Film Festival. She also directed the horror film Candyman 2021. In August of 2020, she was hired to direct The Marvels, becoming the youngest filmmaker to, to direct a Marvel movie, beating the record set by Ryan Coogler, who directed Black Panther. Wow. Um, so this is just her second movie, sounds like. What a what a confident film for, for being this early and, and for her being that young. I mean, she's younger than me, so that's pretty wild. <laughs> uh you know, props to her. That's that's incredible. She hadn't directed a ton. She's very young. And a lot of these people are coming out of film schools now and just have like excellent visions and just like have these stories to tell. I mean, like I have some of her history here and background. And I think that you're going to really quickly understand like influences and like the kind of filmmaker, the kind of student of, of film that I aspire to be. And that I think that I find to be most interesting in, in filmmakers is the ones who look, look to others and the greats and, and sort of build upon that. Um, she was born in Brooklyn and raised in Harlem. She originally wanted to be a writer. Her first viewing of apocalypse now sparked her interest in filmmaking though. This led to Costa to research 1970s film where she found inspiration in directors such as Martin Scorsese, Sidney Lumet, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Ford Coppola. Citing Scorsese as a top inspiration, DaCosta enrolled at his alma mater, New York University Tisch School of the Arts. There, she met Scorsese while working as a TV production assistant. Wow, how about that? I mean, that's some favorites of the podcast. I don't think we've done a Scorsese film, but um, at some point, we I'm, I assume we will find one that's an adaptation. Yeah. I, I assume he's done it. We absolutely should. Uh, yeah. Martin Scorsese is a complete encyclopedia when it comes to film. I feel like he's seen everything, can talk your ear off about any of that. I've listened to so many interviews that he's given about, about that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love to see this kind of stuff, right? Like she's she's a student of film, had this film come out, won a bunch of awards. It was chosen for the 2015 Sundance Screenwriters and Directors Lab. Um, just like all of these things going, going perfect for her. And then... Uh, she funded a short film version of what would eventually become her first feature film through Kickstarter with the help of 72 backers who eventually raised $5,100. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's humble beginnings, honestly, right there. And then at some point, she has to get tapped by Jordan Peele, right? Like, Because I remember when this was first announced, the assumption was Jordan Peele would direct it. Um, I think a lot of people made that uh, assumption, and I did initially. And then he clearly passed it on to her, or I don't know if he was ever truly in the director's seat for this or, or position to be, I don't know. But he chose well, and obviously this is a fantastic movie that got made. He is credited as co-writing the screenplay I, I saw in the opening credits, so he's still involved. Yeah, I think he produced, he definitely he definitely wrote the screenplay or helped and, you know, was one of three people who wrote the screenplay. Yeah, I, I can remember him being attached to it for a very long time. Yeah. But. And it is kind of weird. It's kind of like unfortunate the way that when you have a big name producer, they can overshadow. Because I, I think like unless you know and like and you listen to someone like us talk about it or you like see some of these articles going around like the the majority of people are still going to think of this as Jordan Peele's movie 
because that's how it was marketed. It is unfortunate and, that like yeah. the marketing works that way, but I, I think people who are in the know absolutely understand. And I think that Nia would be ex- like, I think that Nia is ecstatic that Jordan Peele w- collaborated with her in this way and was able to yeah. help shepherd it. I, I, I don't think that she would be worried about it being overshadowed. And ultimately she's about to direct a Marvel film and it's exactly. not gonna matter anymore. She's that's gonna true. be a household name. And it's that, you know, on one hand you're like, oh, it sucks that you're getting overshadowed, but it's like, Jordan Peele is a big name. He's got marketing potential. So there's a reason that marketers want to use the name to put butts in seats and, and get people to see your work. And then now they've been introduced to your film. So, you know, you have to live with some of it, I guess. And part of that process, I will say, has now led to the movie grossing so much money that now all the headlines say Nia DaCosta is the first yeah. black female director to debut at number one. Which is um, awesome. Yeah. You know, incredible. Con- congratulations. That is so cool. Obviously, I, I'm sure that you picked up on this as well, but they, they were filming again in Cabrini Green in the neighborhood. And of course... Well, because the, the project itself has been torn down, right? Right. The project right. from the films, from the original film, yeah. is gone now. But the like... That little like neighborhood the, area? The row houses, yeah, like the, yeah. the small houses and everything. I think those are still there. Um, but the, you know, the movie's even commenting on the, this gentrification that's going oh, yeah. on. And like, I, I think that engaging with that subject as well, with, with all of this going on in the history that's actually there from mm-hmm. this film already, um, it's just so clear. It's like that, that has to be talked about and, and the way that it's handled, I feel is like really poignant. You know, I think that, I think that has a lot of good points to make, but if you're ready, I think it's time to jump into plot. Okay, so passing through the mirror now, and we are on the spoiler side. Um, if you are going to see this film and you want to remain spoiler-free, check out now. Come back later. If you've already seen it, stick around. Okay, so 30 years after the events of the first film, Anthony McCoy is an artist living in Chicago with his girlfriend, art gallery director, Brianna Cartwright. One night, Brianna's brother, Troy, shares the urban legend of Helen Lyle, a graduate student who went on a killing spree in the early 1990s. The story goes that her rampage culminated in a bonfire outside of the Cabrini Green housing project, at which point she attempted to sacrifice a baby. The residents were able to rescue the child from Helen before she perished in the fire in an apparent act of self-immolation. Desperate for a creative spark to turn his career around, Anthony latches onto the story and roams around Cabrini Green looking for inspiration. He eventually has a chance encounter with William Burke, a laundromat owner who introduces him to the story of Candyman. When Burke was a child, he had a frightening encounter with Sherman Fields, a hook-handed man whom the police believed was responsible for putting a razor blade in a piece of candy that ended up in the hands of a white girl. Burke inadvertently alerted the police to his presence in the walls of one of the tower's blocks, leading them to beat Sherman to death. Sherman was later exonerated when more children received candy with razor blades. The legend goes that repeating the name Candyman five times in front of a mirror invokes Sherman's spirit, at which point he appears in the reflection and kills whoever spoke his name. And so much to talk about. Um, I guess let's back up to the introduction of these characters. You mentioned the whole gentrification angle. And once again, I think it's notable that these characters are positioned as wealthy, liberal, well-meaning people, right? Now, they are people of color here, whereas in in the other movie, there was mostly white people. Um but again, and they're living in a building that has been gentrified, and mm-hmm. the point even gets made, right? And uh, Anthony says, yeah, he's right. You know, we, we are living in this building. It's after they're really talk- talking 
heavily about like gentrification and how it's yep. like pushing black people out of the neighborhoods and things like that. And then one of them says basically, yeah, like, you, you know, you're living in this building, which is, a, you know, a product of that. And yeah. they're like, well, yeah. And that's something that's interesting to talk about because that is something that's going on. You yep. know what I mean? That's that's an that's an occurrence that someone someone has that experience. And, and I think that that's an interesting point to make. Right. And um, it's starting to lampshade the thing we were talking about before. It's the beginning of talking about the difficulty of telling stories about trauma um, when you are benefiting from the telling of those stories in some way. Right. And a Anthony uh, uh, is is exactly that. Uh, Anthony McCoy, our main character, he is an artist and he is as soon as someone's an artist in a movie, I immediately know that they're going to be some sort of stand in or uh, reference point for what the movie itself is trying to say or what the filmmaker themselves was struggling with or the screenwriter was struggling with. Um, and that absolutely holds holds true here. He is struggling to recapture some sort of fire that or 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 spark or vision that got him noticed when he was a little younger and now it seems like he's been sort of you know writing his laurels and and uh doing okay but he hasn't created anything new and interesting in a while and mm. he ends up going down the rabbit hole chasing after this candy man myth after he gets told the story right about helen lyle how did you feel about the way that you know the first movie was like directly interacted with i thought it was awesome and the yeah. the, the shadow puppets which is introduced at the beginning uh, then, then touched on several times throughout. Um, it ties in with the with the mirror too, and that it's it's this like shifting perspective, seeing things um, in the in a in the way that they are, the way that light and <laughs> uh, reality projects and uh, interacts with the world. Instead, it, it's sort of indirect and. Um, mm -hmm the way that story is also like that. It's this indirect reflection of life. Mm -hmm. And the story of Candyman and the story of this film is itself this like shadow being cast. It's this this shadow puppet. It's this through a mirror. Um, there's a distance there. And I think that's all being engaged with directly. And then you have, again, this artist character at the heart of it who's trying to look for a piece of art that he can create for his own, you know, career, but he's looking to sort of mine trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing that, I think the audience uh, is, is some people in the audience might not be comfortable with that. And I think the movie directly engages with that. And then he's conflicted with it. Like he, you could tell that it bothers him too. And he is sort of a fish out of water. And I love that when he goes with his camera to take pictures of the graffiti, it was exactly right out of the first movie and out of the story, right? It's the Helen Lyle moment. He's gone somewhere that he doesn't seem to belong and take pictures. And he's doing it as an outsider, viewing it as almost like a uh, safari or something. Like he's going in, he's taking these pictures, and he doesn't belong. And that's a callback to Clive Barker's original novel. Like this, like having exactly. a photographer go to the location is like, yeah. that's like the through line of the story. It's all But there. once again, it gets twisted. Um, uh, skipping ahead a little bit. I know we haven't gotten there in the plot summary, but like it's revealed in the bigger, the big major twist of the movie. So if you haven't, this is going to be a spoiler. Um, <laughs> he is the baby from the first movie. So he actually does belong here. He just doesn't know it. He's forgotten it. 
or he was never told. Um, so it's that inversion, right? It's like, he seems like he's, he's got that distance, but he actually doesn't. Um, so I just love the way that it, it, it sort of fakes me out going one way, goes another very clever. That big twist movement moment was so cool. That reveal is so much fun because it adds layers, like so yeah. many layers, like you talked about, like just him, him going back to literally the place where he was kidnapped and like, like went to this, the site of the fire seemingly. Um, but yeah. I, I do want to talk about the shadow puppet stuff because I found just from a production level standpoint, like I thought that was amazing. I thought it's really, it's really interesting and it lends like another creepy element and it feels otherworldly. It feels like a, it gives like a mythos, like a, like a story that was being told in any time, like ancient times or something like that. Like yeah. the, the, it's a, it's such a, it's such an old form of storytelling, like shadow, shadow te- play or whatever. Uh, I, I thought that was awesome and uh, it looked great and it's nice to get something visual, much visually different to mm-hmm. look at. Like th- we have this live action film and then we also have this, you know, shadow puppet stuff that, that looks amazing. And I, I couldn't find anything. I really looked to, to see like if there was like full on performers or if that was like a CG rendering kind of thing. Oh. But if it was performers with their hands and everything, you could see like that. That's the stuff was amazing. I love that stuff. Yeah, I don't know how that was how it was made. I'm, I'm assuming at some point the the bonus features will come out on the Blu-ray or something. Yeah, right. Um, which I would be interested to see how that was how that was pulled off. But it, it looks great, and it then ties into the uh, he has this art show um, where he's clearly playing with some of this, right? Like there's there's the that you look through the mirror to see these these paintings. Um, he's playing with perspective and. Uh, you know, what follows when Candyman actually shows up is again, like you're seeing reflections, you're seeing shadows and I don't know, just all of that is consistent and it all works. Um, loved it. He also gets stung by a bee, uh, early on here. And, um, I, I love that there is a physical visual manifestation of the possession the he as he gets obsessed with this story and it begins to affect him we see the growing the spreading necrosis i would call it um from this bee sting and um it is so gross um i have uh tryptophobia um which i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's like little clusters of holes really really skews me out and um the further that this progressed the worse it got for me yeah, uh, it during was the end, it was like real tough to all look over at. the place. Yeah, real, real hard to look at. Um, ugh, just even think about it now, I'm getting shivers. It was very gross. <laughs> um, but that, you know, not everybody's gonna be affected in that way. But like for me, that was rough. It was grosser than anything I'd seen in the other movie. Um, and again, it's in the main character, so it feels very close, right? Like he's to me, he's the character that I identified with most, and and I, I felt closest to. So it felt like it was on me, which makes my skin crawl. Is bad, mm-hmm. um, but but also good because it is a physical uh, manifestation to where you can track throughout the movie how much he's being sort of changed by by his interactions with Candyman. Um, and he, and he's also like kind of becoming Candyman, which we'll get into. Um, so it, it's, it just works so, so well. And, and, and in that way, it's still interacting with the original film as well as like, is he doing these murders? And it seems like it's yeah. kind of, you don't really know. And the characters around him don't know. And he seems suspicious. I was surprised he didn't get 
he didn't get implicated in some of these murders more directly because right. I thought they were going that route. It's like, oh, he just left that person's house and then they got killed. Like he's going to be the first subject, uh, first suspect. Honestly, this movie's very tight. It's an hour and a half. Um, I suspect some stuff was cut from it to get it down to that length. And um, I think it works really, really well. I, I'm not saying I needed that. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, it might have felt a little bit too similar to the first movie. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I, yeah, it works really well. Um, I love the pacing of this film, too. I thought it was, like you said, it's so tight and it it's, didn't overstay its welcome in any way. And I thought that like it was just rocketed through and, yeah. and it, I think it really worked for this. But I think we absolutely need to touch on William Burke. Who was played by right. uh, Coleman Domingo, and he was incredible. And yeah. like you know, he seemingly had a smaller role early on. So let's just kind of address it there for the, for, for what it is. Uh, his like flashback interaction with the Candyman in the in the in the wall, and like that that right. was so seemingly he's, he's the boy, which is unclear right. until you know watch more of the movie that he's the boy mm-hmm. you see at the beginning. The init- the first Candyman who has this hook hand and is very creepy comes out of the wall, but ends up being this harmless guy. We find out mm-hmm. later, and he accidentally gets him killed by the police. Um, yeah, and so this is where I want to talk about something that I did see Nia DaCosta talk about, and that is the idea of the unwilling martyr, and um, how there's been so many of them in the black community, and you know, tragically, I think about George Floyd, right? unwilling martyr like a victim who is brutalized and killed and becomes a important figure in martyrdom yet did not choose that did not want to be that um and Candyman is that um you know in in each incarnation and she says i don't remember if she said it or maybe i saw it in the article but it, it was talking about that there, there's basically five different incarnations of Candyman throughout this um movie which is sort of like each for each time you say the name there's like another incarnation and how they are all these unwilling martyrs who end up becoming monsters um through their martyrdom um i don't know like that's it's just really fascinating because it it again goes back to what we were talking about about how it's odd that people like Candyman so much but he's powerful and he's vengeful and yet he's a monster and yet he perpetrates violence against his own community. Um, and I think it's messy. And I think, um, she, I think she's talking about how trauma can like trauma hurts people and it hurts the black community, even as they rally around it. Right. Um, it's just, there's, I mean, again, I don't feel like I'm the right person to really say this, but like, or to talk about this, but it's, I, I noticed it and I, I was affected by it. Yeah, and that and that's something that's taken in this movie and shown even more clearly. Right. Whereas in the there other wasn't, movie, it there maybe, wasn't five in the other one, right? Like I think it was just the one, right? Or did I? Mean, as far as as far as I know, yeah. Well, and, there was the other guy who acted like he was one. Well, there. What, all I mean is that there was there was a Candyman who was like the guy who obviously was like tortured with the bees and everything. Right. Like Tony that. Todd's character in the first one, right? But there wasn't any other Candyman that i that i remember as far from as that we know movie. Yeah. yeah there was the guy who pretended he was that but he didn't die uh and that he wasn't killed by police the first Candyman was that character from the first Candyman as well yes and and then so that follows true so it's like other people who had similar situations that happened that that like became embodiments of Candyman along the way and i think nearing the end we see another one yeah so let me go ahead and break down um the five different candy because i think it is it's important to note so uh, the first 
Candyman version is, well, I guess this is the first after Tony Todd's character. Yeah. Um, we see this, I think, at the end, at the very end uh, credits. Um, it appears to be a man who dies from a white man's axe to his back. Um, as he argues with another, um, this is coming from that article I referenced earlier. And uh, uh, she notes that she couldn't figure out if this was a real person or not. Um, but the second one that gets shown in that that uh, reel at the end, the the shadow puppetry during the, the right. uh, credits, um, is George Stinney Jr., who I actually did research on, I think, for Lovecraft Country. I think it was someone I, I read about um, and just an absolutely tragic figure. Uh, or maybe that was just around that time but for some other reason I did research on him. But um, this child was uh, convicted for murdering two white girls in South Carolina in 1944, and he died by electrocution, becoming the youngest person in modern times to die in the electric chair. Wow. So, that's awful. And we see at the end the getting strapped to the electric chair. And so that's yeah. referencing a real person. Um, so uh, that's one. And then we got um, the third is James Bird Jr., who is another real person, a black man who was dragged to death in 1998 while chained to a truck by three white men in Jasper, Texas. Um, so, and that's another one I think I've heard about. Um, so, so she's, she's looping in some real people and some real mm -hmm. horrific hate crimes. And then she adds another one in Sherman Fields, who is the fictional character she created here, who is beaten to death by policemen um, at the start of this movie. Um, and you know, as we, as we see this, this movie is ultimately about the creation of another Candyman, a fifth Candyman, Anthony McCoy. So, right. um, who also dies by white violence, which we'll get yeah. to. I think that that's, that's what I was picking up on with this movie is that like, although there will be people who absolutely will see this as like using trauma in to ultimately make a film that's going to make money and how that is like a gray area that but but ultimately also bringing awareness um yeah. you know saying their name is another thing that i was thinking of a lot is like think about victims of crimes like this like we have to say their name and remember yeah. what happened and stop this from happening in the future and like the Candyman element of saying his name and and the ways that right i think like this you know it's i think it's a tough subject to to tackle and I think some people will not be okay with it. But for myself, I felt like it added so much weight. And, and it, like I said, when I walked out of the, the theater, I felt like, like I went through something, you know, I yeah. feel like I got a, a new perspective. And I think part of that's part of it is just the way that she was able to frame this story and bring in real world elements in, in that way. Uh, and ultimately create a fun movie at the same time. Like I said before, yeah. it's kind of a tough thing to, to walk because there's the social commentary and there's also a fun slasher movie happening here. Yeah. And so you kind of have to be of two minds as you go through it and be able to like roll with the, how the, how things are playing out. And, but ultimately for me, like I, I liked it, it worked for me and um, I found it affecting. I do want to say as an aside, just considering what I just said, um, I was a little reticent coming into this episode. Um, obviously, we don't have a person of color on with us, um, and we're two white guys trying to talk about this stuff. And it's tough, and we've we've encountered this before. Um, and we ultimately, we come down on the side of if we were to avoid doing movies like this, then we are perpetuating the problem, right, of like, of like silencing, of neglecting, of omitting, of not considering 
these kinds of films, films from um, marginalized communities. Um, and then also we don't want to, we didn't necessarily want to bring someone on to explain things to us, you know, like come talk to us about what it's like to be black. Like it, it's a weird position to put somebody in. It's not saying that if somebody volunteered and like wanted to come do that, I, I would be happy. You know, I'd be honored if someone was willing to do that and talk to us in this way. Um, but I also, I, I don't want to put somebody in that position. So we decided to tackle this just me and James. Um, and it's a difficult thing, but I, again, I, I think it's worthwhile and it's something that I want to do because the alternative, it's the same thing with like when I'm writing stories, like the alternative of like not having to worry about how I'm representing everybody who appears in my story is to write a story with a bunch of white people who are just like me. And then, yeah. then that's the problem of whitewashing and, and not having a diverse story. So that's awful. That's not what I want. So we just have to go into it knowing that it's tricky uh, and just try and be as careful as we can. Um, anyway, I, I'm not sure how much the listener cares about this sort of stuff, but I just wanted to share that this is something that I think about a lot. James thinks about a lot. And we, we tried to figure out the best way to, to do with, with topics like this. Yeah. And I just I echo all of that. And, and just that like this representation, this representation does matter in, in a major way because it's like this. This is our daily lives right now. Like the, yeah. the things that are going on socially right now are directly tied to some of the commentary that, that it's incredible this movie was supposed to come out in 2020 right yeah and you know and then george floyd happened last year and just i mean it it's just insane yeah and it has been going on i mean this is just a clear example how this has been going on for as long as america's been around i think or, right yeah so let's jump into the next section here inspired anthony develops an art exhibit around the legend of Candyman and showcases it at brianna's gallery but is dismayed when she did when he does not get the kind of reaction he was hoping for that night one of brianna's co-workers and his girlfriend are slaughtered by Candyman after saying his name five times in front of a mirror their bodies are discovered in the morning by brianna more people are killed after repeating Candyman's name, including an art critic and a group of teenagers. Meanwhile, Anthony begins to other undergo a physical transformation stemming from a bee sting he suffered on his hand while walking around Cabrini Green. The sting develops into a scab that begins to spread and cover his whole body. Anthony later goes to a hospital to get checked out where he learns that his mother lied about where he was born. Anthony soon pays a visit to his mother, who reveals he was the baby Helen Lyle saved from the fire the, ni the night she died. What a twist. <laughs> yeah. Though the truth is that Helen saved him from the first Candyman, Daniel Robitaille, who abducted him and planned to sacrifice him in the fire. She never told him about it because she wanted Anthony to have a chance at a normal life. The community had vowed never to repeat the legend of Candyman after that night, and his mother fears that will happen to Anthony now that someone has broken their pact. Anthony leaves, resigned to his fate, and wanders the row houses of Cabrini Green. After saying to his mother, do I look normal to you? Uh, yeah. Which I thought was a really affecting line, especially considering just how transformed he is. Um, and, and also, like, thematically poignant because it's it's about that, like, is hiding the past, does that truly protect people, right? Like, it, like, like difficult past, like, painful past. Um, and, and this is, you know, a question that I'm sure a lot of people in the black community have to deal with. Like, you know, do I tell my children about this? Should my parents have told me about it? Um, and I'm sure that there are decisions made all the time to to either tell or not to tell. And a lot of it is okay. that, like, I didn't want to burden you with it. I didn't want it to make you grow up in a certain way or what have you. Um, and I think here, Anthony, at least, is saying, like, this is a part of me and I 
I don't know. It feels like he's not very happy that she hid it from him. Like he would have preferred to know. Yeah, I mean that that revelation was honestly really smart, and and I yeah. feel like I should have seen it coming. But exactly. I, I was like, of course. When it happened, I was like, of course. Why did I not see that coming? <laughs> As it was getting closer, um, I started to realize. But yeah. It wasn't the exact moment that it was revealed that I finally figured it out, but it's not like I'm sure there are people who figured this out because it's not like that. Well, like you should figure it out if you're just thinking about it. I don't know why I didn't either, but I was like, oh, shit, of course. Yeah. Timeline wise makes so much sense too. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the gallery, though. The um, the art. Yeah. Guy and his girlfriend. So his name's dying. Clive, which I thought was interesting considering Clive mm-hmm. Barker. I don't know if that was a direct reference or not. Um, he's awful, I mean, man. How can it not be in some way, right? At least the name has to be like whether it's not supposed to represent it's like him, a nod. But it's the no, name. no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, this guy's fucking awful. You know, he's got this annoying girlfriend who. And so, so one thing that might sound kind of like a criticism at first, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of outline it here. Um, I talked about in our last week's episode that the original Candyman film felt different to me in the sense that. The, a lot of the people who died didn't transgress in any way that I'm used to in a horror movie. It really seemed senseless, a lot of the deaths. And something about that made it very visceral and shocking. Um, you know, like a dog getting its head chopped off. What did that dog do? Uh, anyway, um, in this movie, I, that, I can't say the same. To me, the people who die in this movie all transgress in ways that I am used to seeing in most slasher films. However, I do think that that's intentional um, because in doing that, she makes Candyman as a presence a a sort of uh, figure that you can be like, damn, that's some intense, scary shit. That's some violent shit. But I kind of am rooting for him in a way that is difficult to always do in that first movie. and But throughout this movie, as I thought about it, I was like, everybody Candyman kills kind of has it coming in some way or has done something to... I mean, they don't have it coming, obviously, you know, but, like, there's something they've done in the film that's a transgression that, in the language of cinema, makes us feel okay about them dying. And I can go through each one and talk about it, but like obviously the the guy who runs the the art exhibit, he's been terrible the whole time. He's he's like up his own ass. He's having this, you know, dalliance with someone who's like a working for him. So it's obviously like a power dynamics fucked up here. She doesn't seem particularly great either, like the way she she's talking about everything. Um they both seem out of touch. And then they both die. That's normal horror movie, horror movie stuff to me, um, but it it elevates it and changes it right in, in a way, and it, and it probably is like trying to be that classic slasher movie trope, but through a mirror and changed. Um, so it's not a criticism, but it is something I noticed. There is something else that I've been thinking about with the the first movie. Uh, and it has to do with the fact that like Candyman in that film like needed to prove his existence. And I wanted to know if there was anything that you felt like there was a carryover from that or was that forgotten? Or is there something there that can be said about like the social commentary going on in this film and like needing to needing to be remembered and like that, you know, because I, I felt like there was a little Absolutely. bit of that. I think it's definitely there. Uh, I think you, you touched on it when you said the say my name. There's a reason that's in the in the marketing for this movie. Right. And um, I think it is about bringing Candyman back 
into the modern consciousness, but also like more directly tying Candyman as a vengeful spirit who has died at the hands of white people and is this unwilling martyr who -hmm. has been turned into a monster. Well, and in this film, we can see him legitimately turn into basically a weapon that can be wielded against whoever. Um, And, and, you know, I kind of think that's badass in in the sense of this movie. I mean, I think we're supposed to, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fucking incredible. We'll get to there at the end. Uh, We're about to get that final bit, but in this middle section, uh, did you catch the name of the Clive Barker book? You saw the Clive Barker book, right? I saw it. Yeah, I couldn't catch it. I the, thought the, something the child was, was maybe on the. T- I thought I saw the word child. It's like a two word title. Anyway, so yeah, the uh, this uh, Billy uh, the character is his name Burke William Burke something like that. Um, he is reading this book when we first walked in, and I had like a momentary geek out because I saw that it was a Clive Barker novel. Um, very cool. And then we we do get the flashback of his sister dying. And I didn't know, I didn't even really know until after the movie, after the movie was over, I was like, what was that scene? I had to like put it together and like piece it together. Um, Cause at the time it wasn't clear to me that it was him. Um, but it makes sense that it is. And it makes sense that that was the moment where he had led to the death of this man. And then this man came and like murdered his sister. And in some ways, he would feel responsible, but also he, this it's about like trauma as a child and the way trauma like can be carried with us into adulthood and affect our lives. He's a man who has become trapped by the Candyman mythos, right? Like he lives there. He, he literally runs this laundromat in the same area. And it seems like he has just been waiting for someone like Anthony to come along um, because he is like kind of the secret villain of this movie. And it seems like he is, he is manipulating Anthony to down this road to, to become another Candyman spirit. And then he calls the police, which we're about to get to, to, in order to get Anthony killed. I wasn't clear at the mo- moment of why he was calling the police, but clearly it's that he knows that the ritual requires sacrifice to, to, uh, to white police officers. And, he specifically calls the police and says something of the lines of he's here, he's got a weapon and he's going to kill everybody and knowing that that's going to result in them shooting him. Um, and then it still comes to pass, even though, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the girlfriend character shows up and tries to avert it, which we'll get to. Let's get into that. We're already, we're already touched. Let's on yeah. It. Yeah. Let's jump into it. So concerned about Anthony, Brianna recalls him mentioning that he first heard about Candyman from Burke. So she heads to Cabrini green in hopes of finding him. Once there, she goes to the laundromat where she is locked in the back room. Burke appears and subdues Brianna and takes her to an abandoned church where Anthony has entered a fugue stake as his body continues to deteriorate. Burke reveals that not only did he witness the police beat Sherman to death, but he also saw Sherman return later as the Candyman, after which he butchered his older sister when she summoned him in the bathroom mirror of their apartment. He plans to have Anthony gunned down by the police, creating a new legend in which Candyman is an instrument of vengeance rather than a symbol of pain and suffering. To complete Anthony's transformation into Candyman, he saws off his right hand and replaces it with a hook. Brianna manages to escape the church and is chased into the Cabrini Green row houses by Burke, whom she viciously stabs to death. Anthony appears and collapses into her arms as the police, lured to the scene by Burke, show up and shoot Anthony to death. Brianna is handcuffed and placed in the back of a police SUV, where an officer attempts to intimidate her into agreeing that Anthony provoked the other officer into shooting him. 
Brianna uses the car's rearview mirror to summon Anthony, now Candyman, and he massacres every police officer at the scene. As more police arrive, Candyman takes on the appearance of Robotol and instructs Brianna to tell everyone. During the credits, a montage of shadow puppetry portrays the origins of multiple members of the Candyman hive, including Anthony, Sherman, George Sinney, and James Bird Jr. Which we, we touched on some of those. Um, yeah, what a, what, a, what a finale to this film. Um, a lot that goes on there. I do want to circle back to, I was talking about that childhood trauma. Um, we also see that in uh, Brianna, uh, her father Fire. commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not because of Candyman. I didn't get that implication yet. I think it is included because it is, once again, talking about how trauma affects us as adults uh, was kind of my reading on it. But then also, mm-hmm. like, it's it's another another sign of, like, an artist who is who is so deeply caught up in their art that it actually is wounding them. Um, and, and that's, we see that in Anthony and I think I can sort of extrapolate out to the people involved in making this movie a little bit, right? Like there had to be some real pain experienced in the, in the process of making this movie and referencing these things and, um, re-traumatizing yourself as you, as you explore, I'm sure things that have happened in their own lives. Um, and I think it's really interesting and, 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 powerful to include those details um because again to me that's speaking within the context of the story itself but then also about what it's like to make a movie like this of course bringing in real people who who died from brutality in ways like this yeah um that i mean that does make all of this really real for for anyone who's who's of course you have to understand these characters and you have to understand like their stories and then thread that into this story and how you're also kind of grappling with like is this going to be something that people respond to or is it just going to like completely put people off so i could see that being really difficult um and i did i want to talk about the scene where she Brianna's there with Anthony and like the cops come in and like how yeah. that was a devastating scene. That well, scene was it's, so it's shown through shadow again, right? Like it's a shadow yeah. puppets on the wall, but it's it's this blue, there's this blue of the flashing lights. She has called the you know, the police have arrived and for a moment she's hopeful. She's like, you know, I need your help. And of she course she calls out to them, I she think. She calls right? out to them. And yeah. of course we, you know, too often we have seen that, that you know people get called all the time and it's a big thing in portland for example um just to throw out an example of people calling the police on someone who's having some sort of um mental break or is is in a crisis of some kind and they need help and the police show up and kill that person um and unfortunately that has happened way too many times and i think that's to me that's what she was touching on here a little bit of like you know, if you're a white person, you would assume they're going to help you, but um, that's just not the case. And uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help but think about Brianna Taylor during the scene too, because yeah. there's the moment where you actually think that Brianna may have been shot. Yeah, you're like she calls out, she calls out to the police, and then they come in and start shooting, and you're like, holy fuck, did they just kill her? Yeah, I wonder if that was and, the name because it's Brianna and Brianna. I'm not really sure if the names are exactly the same, but there's definitely they're very similar. So. I wonder if that yeah. was deliberate because you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, uh, that scene was devastating. Yeah. And then um, to get to the scene where she's in the back of the police car, 
Um, yeah, so you have a cop who is telling her kind of the two different options she has, and like it's either go to jail or agree with this bullshit version of the events that I am laying out to you. Um, and then she chooses the third option, right? Like she she asks to have the mirror turned towards her so she can see herself, and she summons Candyman. Um, and this scene, I mean, this scene is up there with what uh, I felt like. I guess I won't, I don't want to spoil it too much just in case it's a different project, but like, um, Yaya Abdul Mateen the second has an incredible series of scenes in Watchmen that this reminded me of, I guess I'll mm. leave it at that. Um, there's a little bit of supernatural, definitely very powerful moments. And, um, again, we, he's fucking hovering. His head is a cloud of bees. He's got this hook. He's vengefully yep. slaughtering all these police who have, who've just, you know, murdered him. It's such a fuck. Yeah. Moment. And it's so righteous and scary at the same time. Right. Cause Candyman is still this figure that you're like, I don't fucking know what this. You're not a hundred percent sure that he's not going to kill Brianna. Yeah. No, you're not. Um, I wasn't. And you, you know, it, we see Tony Todd for a moment there at the end too, where his face is there. So you yeah. know, it's sort of the unification of all of these people and it's still tragic, right? Cause ultimately uh, Anthony is this unwilling martyr. He's died and become a part of this mythos now. And he's sort of lost himself to it. Like the artist that he was like, it's all ended now and it's right. tragic. So well, in the that same time that you're, you're like, the, fuck yeah, you're also like so sad for him and so sad for their yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah, that scene, we got to talk about Tony Todd showing up because yeah. like, that was a massive moment. I mean, how cool is that? that cool. he it, it, it aged down, it seemed like. They yeah. tried to make him look like he did in the original movie, which like, I get why you do that, you know? You want yeah, to, it's cool. It's I mean, he's spirit, like an ageless. So he's not supposed to exactly. age, yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought that was awesome to, to bring him back. And then yeah, you you mentioned it. We've talked about it a little bit here and there, but the the shadow puppetry stuff at the end of the film. Yeah, I I thought it was just going to be sort of a recap of the film or something to say like. Yeah, I was I was shocked that it was kind of new information. Yeah, it was new information, and I was like watching it, and I was like whole, like realizing that these are just atrocities, like yeah. just brutality that happened, and realizing that it's the other it's the other Candyman yeah. and like the other people that have been mentioned it ties and, it all like, together. Yeah. That was such that was an incredible way to end the film. And again, very poignant yeah. and left me walking out I of the theater. I do think uh, it could it would be very easy to miss it. So it's interesting yeah. to include it at that spot. Well, I know people people got up and left my theater before that was over. Did they really? Yeah. So I, yeah. I think most people stayed in mind. But um, Nia de Costa raised the fucking bar on credits. This is above anything I've seen. This is beyond any sort of like clever. Oh, we're going to have some fun like you know photographs we're gonna have you know some flashiness we're gonna have some gra like no no this is on another level it's it was back at the art exhibit it's a projection on the wall which i don't know if that was digital or not but it looked like legit like it was actually done with a projector and at the same time you're getting important information from the movie you're getting the projection of the actual credits of the film uh, I thought it was absolutely incredible. My favorite, this is my favorite weird thing, but it's my favorite credit scene. I, I think I've ever seen and definitely yeah. in a long time. I'd have to like absolutely. think about all the other ones, but it's amazing. Right. I mean, off the top of my head. Yeah. I, this, this one's incredible. 
And yeah, because you know like me, I man. Said, like I, I famously affecting. was like, I get like fucking fast forward through these things. I don't need to see them all. You know, like I, yeah. I appreciate that people want to have their name on it, but sometimes they go on for a really long time. But like, <laughs> um, and you know, Marvel movies in particular, because you have to wait to the end to see the final. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but this was like, okay, I'm fucking wrong because this was incredible. And if you're gonna if you're gonna hit me with something like this, then I'm all in. Just amazing stuff. So we 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 skipped over a, mo- a part we we, we kind of touched on earlier, and I want to circle back to it. And that's when the white girls at the I think high school or college, not really sure, um, right. are in the bathroom and they summon Candyman. All four of them line up. A fifth one's there who runs off, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and again, they all tr- they all transgress. Um, and, I, and I mentioned that for how everybody I think in this movie does um, because we see them bullying the black girl who comes into right. the bathroom. And so they all kind of deserve it. You know what I mean? Like just a, just a little bit in the, in the language just of cinema, enough, right. Yeah. Um, to where we can kind of cheer for Candyman as he brutally kills all of them. Right. Um, Two things um, that this just reminded me of that sliding the little pocket mirror that slides across and you could see him. That was a very cool. So interesting. Cool. Shot. He's, he's visible in these mirrors the other thing is the bees, the way that the bees like are inverted in the inside of the mirror was so, so, so cool. cool. Um, it did feel like a cliche sort of slasher film scene too, right? right? Like they the, the teenagers say the name and then the, the bad guy summoned and then he, you know, he kills everybody or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, the bullying obviously helped us deal with the fact that they were, they were clearly assholes and, uh, yeah, and then the perspective of this girl who's just in the stall and and just like dealing with that, walking out and seeing that, uh, I was I was happy. I will say because I feel like in the first Candyman, that girl may have died as well, yep. but in this one, it, you know, you could see the the change in sort of motivation and and like well, that's it's not positioning the character the... to be this a character that I think more people are going to be comfortable cheering for. Whereas I was conflicted after that first movie of like, should I like Candyman as a, as a creature? You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's, he's pretty indiscriminate with his violence. It felt like to so, me. So another thing that I wonder how people will like Candyman film, like f- fans who love the original film. I wonder if they'll feel any sense. Cause I felt like the sexiness, mm. you know, wasn't really there. And was it because it, the ritual wasn't completed until the end when Tony Todd showed up? And I'm specifically saying like a Candyman with the hook, when when like you know when he's showing up and seducing his people into like basically right. wanting to die. Yeah, that's true because we get this other version of Candyman. It's the one we see the most actually, right? And he's yeah. not sexy, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean that guy, that guy. Yeah. So and he becomes Candyman eventually. So like, I think he takes on like by the time he dons the mantle, I think he's right up there with Tony Todd. I think most people would say. Right. I mean, he looks pretty horrific in his like burned like high fleshy skin that still yeah. creeps me out the way that uh I, it's just a different approach that that candy man had in this in this one like there was like the sort of seductive part yeah. of of his like killings that that wasn't really there anymore um tony todd's candy man came back yeah he died in the first one in a fire and then like all these other things have also been candy man along the way and then like this final candy man anthony creates like recreates Candyman in in the in the original yeah, form. which i guess was burke's maybe burke's plan i'm not really sure i was a little unclear on exactly yeah. what burke's plan that that um summary you read kind of outlined his plan but i'm not sure how clear that is in the film itself um yeah it might be i'd have to watch it again you know what i mean because I, I maybe i just right. wasn't picking up on it 
Um, I was very unclear what his plan was. Um, But now in retrospect, it's like, oh, obviously he was trying to get him killed and and, and become another version of Candyman. But is that because he's trying to resummon the original version? Or is it more about that version that he interacted with as a kid? And is he just, I I don't know. I'm, I'm just, yeah, it's kind of muddy to me. So I did have one other scene and character that I really, really want to talk about. Um, it's the critic. Is it the brother? No, it's the critic. Uh, the, bro- the brother's great. The brother's a nice little bit great, of yeah. uh, comedic uh, relief that I think the movie like this needs. But um, the critic. Uh, anytime you have a movie that's about art and then you have a snooty critic come in, Very. this is a white woman who is, you know, disconnected from this kind of art and she's commenting on Anthony's art and she's calling it cliche and obvious and like heavy handed and like all of these things you can see are potential criticisms of this movie. I'm not saying I agree with that, but like, it's like kind of like people might view this movie this way and Mm -hmm. um, her role in the movie is to be sort of educated. Like, like you have to, you have to say the name yourself you have to interact with it yourself. I dare you. And then then you'll understand. Um, right. And then she ends up dying uh, through that. But I think it's also notable that she all of a sudden cares and likes Anthony and is drawn to him after people die. And I think that that was saying something, too, about the nature of criticism and especially black art in particular. Like, when it's tied to, like something flashy and bloody that someone feels like they can market or, or is like going to grab the public all of a sudden now it's interesting. Um, and it, for like a bad reason. And it seemed like, so she she was terrible on many levels. Right. And so I was not surprised to see her die. Um, but then I also just wanted to shout out, um, very first off, very cool mirror scene as he's looking at himself as as Candyman in the mirror and all that was very cool. Right. The trailer for Last Night in Soho was before my before my film viewing. Yeah, and uh, there's Mine the too. scene where Anya Taylor Joy and and the other actor are like mirroring each other, and I couldn't help but think about like this this film doing the exact same that's thing. That's funny. I didn't I didn't make that connection, but now that you say it, I had seen that same trailer. So that's because because it's two actors and they're acting as if they're yeah. the other one's a mirror of yeah. themselves. So they have to choreograph all of that. And I always that, those scenes are so fun. Very like, cool. Um, no, yeah, I, I totally get you. But um, that scene is awesome. And then um, again, we get more more mirror motif. But then there's this moment where he leaves and it we zoom out to outside the condominium yeah. or apartment complex and we witness the murder. She's like this figure as viewed inside the building that is like, I think one of those gentrified buildings is the implication I got. And I don't, I, I that perspective shift is very intentional and, and it's trying to say something. It reminded me of the opening, you know, like uh, it reminded me of also there was a moment where, um, uh Anthony and Brianna are like getting intimate and they don't they have the blinds are open I don't know if you noticed that if that's something that you reacted to or not but as someone who lives in a condo like I was like all them blinds are pretty open so your neighbors can look (laughs) in and see this um just something about that like sort of like you're on display but like people don't see you maybe is the implication and like I think the implication here is that people weren't seeing her be murdered even though she's sort of on display and I don't know if that's trying to say something about urban life or what, 
but it's, it it's, be, yeah. it's an interesting moment and i think it is saying something and like good pieces of art it's open to, to some interpretation it also reminds me of like a dollhouse thing right like yeah. it, it pulls out and it shows it as almost like a small thing that's happening in a room of so many other things happening in the city just a small one small murder happening yeah no one else is seeing it yeah one other thing i want to bring in is that uh two different artists were used for anthony's art in the film um literally one one artist creates all the stuff that is his early work and then they brought in a new artist to create all the stuff he i think he starts making once he's been possessed by Candyman. now this makes sense it's like yeah of course you'd do that but like i do think it's it's interesting to note they didn't have the same artist try and change his style they wanted it to be someone completely different and feel like he is a different person um, I like that. And yeah. I think that's small effective. details, small details. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Stuff adds up to something. Amazing. And I think it's notable that his art is like really bloody and really powerful and really shocking. And you could look at this movie as the same thing and how it's going to be. It's going to be too extreme for a lot of people. And I think uh, the film is aware, like self-aware about that. Very cool. All that all that plays into that final moment of um agency that's given back to the character who's been murdered at the hands of the police and able to take vengeance on them man it's so cool i really like this movie an incredible line i thought i can't remember who delivers it maybe you will but one character says to another they love the things we make but they don't love us i do think there is something powerful about people loving black art and specifically speaking as a white person like loving pieces of black art but this is a reminder to take it a step farther. Don't stop at the art itself, but think about the person who made it and why. And that's something that we're trying to do here. Um, and I think yeah. it's a reminder to care about the people making this stuff and the reasons they're making it and not just come in surface level and go, oh, that was a fun slasher movie. That was a fun whatever. You know what I mean? Like I like that music and not think about what is actually being said and feeling that pain, um, I think it's just an important reminder. One other thing I wanted to touch on was just that I, I think it's fun whenever uh, you get to murder a critic in your movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, go ahead and go ahead and call this movie too, uh, too, too bloody, too extreme, too whatever, you know, and uh, you, you'll know exactly how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> they were daring they were daring someone to say that kind of stuff and of course people will say it yeah and you know part of them will probably miss the point of it and do i think there's a place for film criticism absolutely <laughs> but you know there's a, there's there comes a point that uh well it's it's a it's know. a bad faith critic right like clearly she was right. she changed her tune for a bullshit reason so clearly this was right. a bad faith critic yeah exactly. everybody doesn't like that i think yeah fuck them yeah fuck them <laughs> <laughs> anyway um what a what a great movie um if you enjoyed our coverage of Candyman as a whole um also by the way we usually uh kind of decide whether or not something was better than the original work at the end of a project we did that last week because we felt like this wasn't going to be a direct adaptation and it isn't so that's why we're not doing that here if that's unusual to you um anyway um if you enjoyed our coverage of Candyman, please let us know in the form of a rating and review open up that app you're on now go leave us five stars um little little couple words that's all it takes i'd love to see <laughs> some more reviews we haven't gotten many in a while so um make me happy and do that <laughs> yeah and if you'd like to support us in another way consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And uh, we have many different tiers, but for just $2 a month, you get all of our bonus content. And we put one of those out monthly. Uh, we do video content, 
adaptation adjacent stuff all kinds of experimental stuff over there so check that out uh yes and thank you to laura J, who is our newest patron for signing up we appreciate uh you and having you along for the journey if you want to hear your name said check out our patreon um also we just are releasing and it should be out by the time you hear this um our bonus episode for august which is the never-ending story two the final no the next chapter something like that um i can't forget what the subtitle is not a good movie but uh you can hear us uh struggle to talk about it and um i thought the recording was fun so if that sounds interesting to you um check that out it'll be on our patreon yeah and make sure to check out our social media accounts we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film uh, we have the Council of Inklings as well on Facebook where we post polls and all kinds of other stuff. So it's a good good way to stay in touch. And thank you to Vivek Abhishek for our intro and outro music. All right. Here at the end, only thing left to do is to announce our next project. Uh, do you want to hit him with it? It is The Handmaid's Tale. Right. Margaret Atwood um, and uh, the Hulu adaptation. The Hulu adaptation is massive, right? Like I've seen it referenced so many times. People love it there's more there's multiple seasons that's all well and good i'm really excited to read a novel by margaret atwood she is a figure that i have heard about so much people love um i just know i'm gonna enjoy this book um so i'm really looking forward to reading it and we'll be getting into that next week uh so if you're a fan of atwood definitely check that out um we hope you stick around for for our uh the remaining projects we have this year uh dune by the way coming eventually our 200th episode we're going to do some sort of celebration for that a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike um so make sure to stick around for all of that well until next time keep adapting